Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Emily Woodbury. With her new book, Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me, Aisha Harris invites us to not just enjoy pop culture, but to truly dig into it. To ask ourselves, why do we react a certain way about a piece of entertainment? What are the larger cultural forces that move us to feel a certain way about what we're experiencing? Aisha Harris, co-host of the NPR podcast Pop Culture Happy Hour, spoke recently with Elaine Cha on stage before a live audience. The event was sponsored by the St. Louis County Library Foundation, the Novel Neighbor Bookstore, and St. Louis Public Radio. Elaine started the conversation by asking Aisha how she would describe what she does to a fourth grader. I would tell them that I get to watch lots of movies and TV shows and then talk about them or write about them, and I get paid to do that. (laughs) I'm very lucky. (laughs) Have you had young kids ask you what it is you do? No, but I'm also not really around kids that often. Mm-hmm. So, now that's uh, something that's addressed in the book. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is addressed in the book. Uh, yeah, I don't find myself around kids that often, um, but that would be how I would explain it if they, they did ask me. And yeah. part of the reason I had asked that is you, know, you talk about being a kid in a particular time, um, and so it seems proper to ask that question, especially because it seems like kids nowadays are very much immersed in pop culture, kind of in a different way maybe than they were in the past. At what point, Aisha, did you become aware of pop culture as a thing? Mm. Uh, probably being a, a you know four or five-year-old kid who was obsessed with Disney movies and my mom kind of, uh, my mom would always get the the VHS of the latest Disney movie and then the soundtrack and then we'd listen to it in the car. And I think that was kind of one of my earliest sort of pop culture obsessions. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as like when I realized that it was a thing that can affect us and, and had an effect on me, um, you know, probably middle school, high school, you know, when you start seeing things and you start seeing representation of people who look like me and not always feeling the greatest about it or feeling some sort of insecurities around it. Um, And then when I realized that I could also turn that into something that I actually did do for a living, it was probably like college um, when I when I really thought, oh, this is something that I would love to pursue. Uh, you know, I was reading a lot of film critics, and I realized one of the things I love is being able to 
learn about the world through pop culture and learn about it through movies and TV shows and music because all these things are not created in a vacuum. They are created from the time period that they are coming out of. They reflect society. Sometimes they influence society. And I really liked being able to do that. And so I, I really felt as though this is my this is my pathway in and this is why I this is how I get to engage with pop culture is, you know, by writing and talking about it. Yeah. So you're here because of this book and you have been a writer for a long time. As a way of introduction, I want to do a lightning round with your book, and this is something I, I kind of like to do um, to help people who have maybe not yet been able to read it kind of get acquainted. Okay. So Alrighty. which of your chapters came most easily? Uh, there's an entire chapter about um, the over-franchisification of Hollywood now, um, and it's kind of an essay where I got to got to have a little fun and be a little bit more creative with how I approached it. And so I approach it as someone who's kind of stuck in this eternal loop of having all of the pop culture I grew up with regurgitated back to me, but in a slightly different form. So of course, you know, the Disney live action remakes where they're just remaking movies that I saw when I was a kid, but now they're live action, although they're really also mostly CGI. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I go down this journey uh, with how there are examples of things that are not necessarily uh, bad sequels or reboots. I specifically point out the Before Sunrise uh, trilogy, um, which I think is just the rare, I guess you can call it a franchise because there's three of them, but yeah. like the rare franchise that actually somehow like gets better with every movie. Um, so that was, that was definitely the one that came easiest to me because it also just like I wanted to tap into my very real frustrations about everything feeling rehashed and reheated. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was able to really just kind of dig into it okay. in that way. Which of these chapters required the most research? Um, probably the first chapter, which is all about my name and my uh, uh, how I kind of created this mythology around my name, that I, uh, how I got my name, that wasn't quite true. Um, and I learned later on that it wasn't quite true. Um, and that one actually required a lot of, I did a lot of, you know, looking at old newspaper clippings uh, and, and um, yeah, I, I feel like I, I used a lot of JSTOR and LexisNexis while okay. doing this uh -huh. and just being able to look at, uh, reference a lot of different things, and there's also a lot of different movie and TV references in there. I, I reference everything from The Wire to The Lion King to Roots um, and Beyonce and Prince, and yeah, I think that one probably took had the most uh, had the, have, has the most endnotes. Maybe not. I don't know. How did you keep track of that all? Uh, I had a lot of tabs okay. open. <laughs> It probably slowed my computer down, but yeah, I had lots of tabs open. And also like I have like a an app that I use for all of my like organizing of thoughts. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of like links <laughs> in one place. Yeah. 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 Which of their chapters were you most eager to share or was the biggest relief to complete? Mm, one of the earlier chapters is called Blackity Black. 
Yes, it is, thank you. Uh, <laughs> and it is about um, how we wrestle with talking about black art and black criticism and what it's like to be a, a critic who also, you know, oftentimes is not felt as though I've seen good representation or felt underrepresented um, and the, the the struggles that come with it because I think any critic, regardless of their background, is going to you know deal with people who disagree with them. That's just what it is. This is a very subjective profession. Um, I'm not a doctor, like, you know, I, everything is subjective. And especially in the social media age, when you're a critic, the critics come back to you <laughs> via Twitter and, and Instagram. Um, and I really wanted to sort of look at how things have changed, and I think that we have so much better and, and more representation of black uh, blackness in art and in our popular culture. And, and so I think we need to sort of readjust our um, how we approach critiquing it. Um, you know, The Little Mermaid, the remake uh, with Halle Bailey, I wrote a review of that for NPR. People were not happy with it because I did not like the movie. Um, <laughs> and they accused me of like not supporting the movie just because it had a black aerial and uh, how I, like if I write this negative review, then Disney's never gonna make movies like this anymore. I'm like, that's, I'm a lowly critic. <laughs> You know, yes, I have power to some extent, but it's not like, I'm not gonna change some studio exec's mind about why they made that movie. It's, they probably didn't even read it. Um, but I, I think it's just important to be truthful and honest when you're approaching art and art, and art criticism. Um, and so I really wanted to sort of dig into how I've learned to not let um, my concern about critiquing a movie just because it has black representation or female representation or any kind of representation that maybe aligns with my demographic. Um, how I also wanted us to be able to focus and honestly critique that art, um, taking it seriously. Yeah. yeah, I did a lot of underlining in that chapter mm -hmm. and I have felt, I mean, I, I do not have the kind of platform that you do um, and I, I am not a cultural critic in, in the same way that you are, but as someone who is, of Asian, East Asian descent, there have been plenty of times when people will ask me for my opinion, mm. and often what they're looking for is a corroboration of what they think, Yes, and it's about their expectations, mm. not necessarily about their interest in what it is. Right. Right. And I will say, the people who were upset with me about The Little Mermaid hadn't even seen the movie. Because <laughs> the review came out like three or four days before the movie even dropped. Uh, so, you know, the, the, it, it, the noise quieted down once the movie came out and I was like, hmm. Yeah, I know, it wasn't a good movie. We the all, silence we can, is we can, telling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which of the chapters you wrote, Aisha, gave you most pause? Like, should I include this? Should I not include this? Yeah. Uh, I have a whole, yeah, so one of the chapters is about my feelings about children and how I don't want them. Um, but I also go into sort of exploring how popular culture really sort of reinforces this 
what I call procreation expectation, um, which is that like, you know, any TV show that lasts long enough, if, if it's a stars a bunch of 20, 30 somethings, at some point someone's gonna either have a kid or want to have a kid. Uh, you know, it's happened in Insecure, it happened in uh, Girls, pick, name, name any show like right, that. Right. Um, and I talk about sort of how there's more recent pop culture that I think really wrestles with the idea of having kids in a way that I find really interesting and feels less like an expect, like it doesn't play into a lot of the tropes of like, oh, parenting is hard, but it's worth it. Um, and like I use the example of the really fantastic TV show Catastrophe, um, which just like, it's a British show and it's about two people who have a one week stand while one of them is in town for work and then she gets pregnant and then they decide to like try to have a relationship. And what I love about that show is the fact that like it's less about them being parents and more about how they are trying to put each other first. Yeah. And so what gave me pause about writing that essay was sort of including something personal about my parents and how, you know, while I do not have kids, I do think I am a child of parents and I felt as though I could write the essay. Um, but I, I do think in some ways my parents who got divorced when I was 17, um, you know, I, I, I hesitated with how I would put it in the book, um, but I did ask my mother and I told her I was gonna put it in the book. I was like, do you, did, if you had to do this all over again, would you have kids? And she said, probably not. Like, there's so many other things that she wanted to do, but because of the time period, um, she, you know, it, not that she felt pressured to do it, but I think, you know, she looks back and she's like, oh, I kind of wish I hadn't done that. And I did not bother me at all. Yeah. I, I actually find that really refreshing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think more people should be able to say that without being attacked because it's a choice that you can't back out of, or you can't back out of without being stigmatized. Right. So, um, yeah, that was, I'm glad I put it in the book, and I, I think it was important to, to have that there. Yeah. It's when I discussed it with my husband, and we did procreate, and it was on purpose. <laughs> um, but we have often talked about how our lives you know, would have and could have been different it's just a different set of circumstances, not with judgment. And I think that is, uh, it's a lot of conversation that I've heard between people when we're not talking about pop culture. And I saw a number of you nodding when you were describing the, that British series, Catastrophe. Yeah, it's a great series. Everyone should watch it if you haven't already. And it's like four seasons, six episodes, so it's really quick. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, yeah. Which of these chapters, Aisha, would you send to a younger version of yourself to read? Uh, the cool girl chapter. So I, I have a, and so what, in that chapter, I really wanted to sort of talk about what it was like to grow up in the 90s and, and have these kind of dueling um, ideas of what femininity and masculinity could be and, and aligning masculinity with power and femininity with not power, sub submissiveness, and how I kind of tried to craft my own image through the pop cultural figures that I saw who I thought were like closer to a quote unquote masculine version of, of just being. And so 
you know, I Christy Thomas from the Babysitters Club. I was like, I want to be a tomboy. I'm not going to wear dresses because like girls wear dresses and and like all these all those phrases that you hear as a kid, like you kick like a girl or you throw like a girl or whatever. Um, and then I move on to how that like the tomboyness also like uh, really. Uh, moved into as I was becoming interested in boys and how I decided, well, I need to be the sort of dominant person in these relationships and, um, you know, be the way that men tend to be in relationships, like not caring. And so, again, I'm not saying these are things that are true, but this is just <laughs> what I thought. I was like, I want to be like Sam Malone on Cheers or like Samantha Jones on Sex and the City, Nola Darling, and she's got to have it. Um, and so that essay is kind of a letter to myself in that it's me sort of working through why did I want to be like this and how did that screw me up so much? Um, and how did I overcome it? Yeah. And I think I overcame it. Yeah. But yeah, that was a uh, that was one that I feel like if I read it when I was younger, I would have gotten it sooner than I did. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. Welcome back. I'm Emily Woodbury. This hour, we're listening to Elaine Cha's conversation with Aisha Harris, co-host of the NPR podcast Pop Culture Happy Hour. In her new book, Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me, Aisha shares her experiences as a black suburban 90s kid turned 30-something city-dwelling journalist. Their conversation was taped before a live audience at the Ethical Society on Clayton Road in June. So I love that there is cussing in this book, and I enunciate very well. I have a potty mouth. I don't know if this is going to make it onto the show, the, the broadcast, but I appreciate it because it feels truer to how I hear and experience conversations about popular culture. Um, but I can see how for some that the use of colorful language, it plays into this idea that pop culture is inherently lowbrow, mm. right? Um, and public radio is a form of media that's often associated with elitist intellectualism, <laughs> smart for smart's sake sometimes, yeah. with stuffiness, with dustiness. <laughs> um, you wrote about the 30 Rock muffin top song in the book in it. When I hear muffin, I immediately think of Saturday Night Live's NPR delicious dish, dusty muffin skit with Betty White. Yes. <laughs> right? Now, yeah. all that said, did you ever imagine that you would be co-hosting a national public radio podcast about pop culture? No. Uh, and I will say my, my dad is one of those people who's like, you don't need to cuss. Like, 
you can find different words. And I'm like, no, sometimes a well-placed F word is like exactly what needs to be. Like, that's how you get the point across. Um, he is very, he's way more conservative. I think I've heard him cuss like maybe twice and it was when he like stubbed his toe or something. Uh, but yeah, no, I, it's funny. I could not see my career trajectory leading me to here, but I had been listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour since... 2010, 2011. It was one of the first podcasts I ever got into, uh-huh. um, and so it was really, it was really weird to like when I got the opportunity to. I started off as like a guest, uh, guest co, guest uh, on the show. I had been on a few times before I joined full time because we have rotating chairs who uh, fill in. They're freelance critics. They're writers, you know. Um, so I had been on the show a few times, but then once I joined, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then on top of that. I had no idea what any of them looked like. Oh, okay. Uh, because it's like, you don't usually, it's radio or it's podcasting sure. and you don't like, I, I don't know, I don't usually like Google to see what someone looks like. I, maybe other people do, but. <laughs> well, I went a really long time. I went like eight or nine years without knowing what they looked like. And then when I was doing like the round of interviews and whatever, I saw their faces on it. Cause this was like peak pandemic time and uh, we were, all in lockdown, so everything was done over Zoom. And I saw their faces and I was like, I did not think any of you looked like you do. But <laughs> I didn't but I didn't really have any I didn't have a sense of what they looked like. But now it's weird because people tell me that all the time. Because they're yeah. like, I hear your like I hear your voice, but I have no like like I I thought you were gonna be taller. And I'm like, oh no. <laughs> you know. No You're just the right height. I am you know, I wanted to be a rocket uh, when I was a kid that did not obviously happen like I'm way too short I'm 5'1 uh but you know that it's I've come to accept my my shortness yeah so how were you introduced to pop culture happy hour were you already listening to NPR at that time uh I mean my dad used to listen to NPR in the car all the time so like I heard NPR as a kid all the time um but I think you know this is 2010 2011 so I was in between undergrad and grad school and I remember like just hearing about podcasts and and the first podcast that I was at all interested in I was like movies like so I listened to a lot of podcasts um pop culture happy hour was one of those I think that just like came up while I was searching for pop culture podcasts Mm -hmm. and so it was that one and there was also um Film Spotting, which is a podcast that I've been listening to for forever as well. Like both those shows at the same time, kind of became my my staples. And yeah, yeah. years later, I'm on I'm, I'm on NPR, and right. I'm also I've <laughs> I've popped up on Film Spotting sometimes too. So yeah. it's great. <laughs> so I like to ask that question about introduction to NPR because many people have different entree. You know, sometimes it is their parents. You know, your your conservative dad. Oh, okay. Conservative, like, he's not conservative, conservative. Oh, okay. He's like, he's just old school with, like, when I was a kid, I want to make this clear. He's not, you know, he's not a Republican. He's not, like, but he is very much, like, of the, you know, when we were kids, like, we could only call any adult or anyone over the age of 16, like, Mr. whatever your name is. and no cussing, yeah. and we like we weren't allowed to have like water gun. Like it's that kind of. Okay. But, okay. Yeah, I just want to make that clear. <laughs> no, it's a good clarification to make. Yeah. Well, and I bring that up because you know, so you started as a writer at Slate and went on to become an editor there. 
And you know, you describe in your book Slate as a workplace that did not have that much, you know, color or diversity. Yeah, like most places. Yes, like most places. <laughs> most, most media companies. Mm-hmm. Let's be let's be real. Uh, well, yeah. most media companies and NPR has a particular reputation. I brought up the SNL skit because that is very much part of it. Um, Demographics of the listenership, it is shifting, but it still skews pretty white, more affluent, urban and suburban versus rural. Have you found yourself um, ever sort of struggling with how you talk about certain things, you know, books, films, music, art, because of that, and you know, you had talked earlier about the the Blackity Black chapter two about being an art critic. Mm. But has that come up at all, or um, you know, do you think that you started at a time when you didn't have to think about that as much? Um, I feel like that's not as much of an issue at NPR. Um, and the thing about Slate is that even though it was you know, at, especially when I joined at the time, it was very heavily white. Um, Slate is also kind of, you know, known for being contrarian and, and known for, you know, make, making bold, yeah, certain sensibility and like <laughs> making very bold statements. Um, and so I definitely had like a, I felt kind of a freedom to sort of say what I needed to say. It's just like you have to expect there to be some sort of blowback or negative feedback from readers. Um, I think at Pop Culture Happy Hour, we definitely, um, we try to be, we're trying to branch out and be more inclusive, including all the guests we've had on the show and the things that we cover and the things we talk about. Um, So we are trying to both be more inclusive in terms of not just race and, and ethnicity, but also age. You know, uh, we've there are certain things that sometimes I, I have to watch. Uh, it wouldn't quite be my interest. Uh, you know, younger adult show. I'm not really a YA person because mm-hmm. I'm not a young adult anymore. <laughs> uh, but that's you know part of the job is also like, stepping outside your comfort zone and also trying to not just serve yourself, but also serve your audience. Um, and so it's definitely something we're always just trying to be mindful of and, and talking about and, and um, working on. This hour, we're listening to Elaine Cha's conversation with Aisha Harris, co-host of the NPR podcast, Pop Culture Happy Hour, about her new book, Wannabe. This conversation was taped in June before a live audience in St. Louis County. I'd like to take this time to open up to audience questions. If you could give your first name and your question, that would be great. My name is Colette, and I wonder, do you ever get pushback when you review certain shows with people of color? Because my favorite shows, like Hentified, get canceled very quickly because Latinx shows just, they just don't make it. Mm, Yeah. Um, Yes. (laughs) That's definitely happened to me, and that is absolutely... I've, I definitely think that for Latin-A shows especially, it seems as though there's not always, and this is on, on, on our part as media people sometimes, are not always covered as well. And I think that's sometimes why those things get canceled. It's not even necessarily that they don't have viewers, because I know a lot of people who watch that show. And it's the same with um, One Day at a Time, the Rita Moreno 
uh, remake of the original show. Um, I really, I loved that show so much, and I was sad that it was left. But definitely, I definitely got pushback. I mean, I got pushback when we did an episode of PCHH of uh, about and just like that, the Sex and the City remake, and I was very critical of how they decided to just suddenly try to be, you know, inclusive and diversify and. I, I've, I've watched the first two episodes of this new season. I still don't think it's working. Uh, but now I'm just hate watching it. And, <laughs> uh, but yeah, there was pushback from people, um, maybe people who were involved with the show, but I will not go any deeper into that. But yes, sometimes we do get, get pushback. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for your question. Hello, Aisha. Hi. Um, I was invited to this event by a colleague, and I'm so happy I came because I feel like you've really spoke to my perspective as a film and television critic. A lot of my opinions differ differentiate from my peers and my friends because, you know, I'm actually looking and I'm actually understanding the story and trying to get the casting down. But my question to you is, um, when was the moment where you was like, wow, I'm very critical of the things that I look at, the things that I read, and this is something that I really want to get into as a career and as a passion. Um, <clears throat> I think it's probably 2009, I just graduated, or 2009, 2010, I just graduated from undergrad. Um, and the movie Precious came out Lee Daniels, Monique, uh, and I remember, and I now I've not seen this movie since it came out. It's one of those. It's like Requiem for a Dream or whatever. Where I'm like, I saw it once. I don't even never need to see it again. It is traumatic. It is. Um, but I remember I actually wound up writing a piece. It, it was I think it was my first published piece in a newspaper, the local newspaper. Um, I will say there was a little bit of nepotism involved because my dad write, wrote for that newspaper. <laughs> So I'm going to be honest Full about disclosure. that. Yes, uh, but I did write a piece about Precious and um, th how I, I think I, I don't remember what it was exactly, but I was very concerned about the the fact that it had uh, it was you know being talked up as this big Oscar uh, contender, and then of course Monique won. Uh, but I was like, oh, this is just trauma porn, and like, why are the Oscars only ever? Uh, honoring movies where black people are suffering in like the worst ways possible. And I think that's definitely true. Still to this day, um, you know, oftentimes the characters in, that are winning and or nominated in those categories, they've gone, there's like, there's the capital S slavery or there's the capital civil rights movement, whatever. Um, but if I, if I were to watch that movie today and write about it, I would probably focus a little less necessarily on this like positive versus negative representation and more on the nuances of the film. And I think that's kind of part of what I actually talk about in the book is sort of how I was all, like when I first started writing, I was searching for sort of just like checking off boxes of like, does this black person live to the end? Or does this black person, you know, get, like do they suffer trauma? Um, and I, I really kind of want to push back against that um, and being like doing that in such black and white, no pun intended, terms, um, and being a little bit more nuanced about it. Was this book inspired in part by things that you 
have wanted to explore further or more deeply than the podcast allows? I mean, I feel like every every chapter is like kind of something that takes something that I've touched on throughout my career in some way, shape, or form, but really kind of a is way more personal than I'm usually able to get on the show or want to get on the show. Um, and then B also like there's only so much time. So um, really being able to sort of write long for the first time, at least in this capacity. I don't think I've written this many words since I was in college, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I really loved being able to do that because you know, ask any editor who has edited me and I always, almost always turn in copy that's like, you got a lot of chopping you're gonna need to do. Cause I just, I write, a, I just go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I don't, I don't take it personally, but sometimes I do kind of, I fight for the things that I think are worth keeping in. Mm-hmm. Um, but really for me, it was just g- about getting to explore, have an opportunity to really write long and more creatively and get more personal than I usually do. Yeah. Has hosting the podcast done anything to change your writing voice? So it's interesting, when I started started at the, the podcast, so we write our introductions and then the rest of the conversation is pretty loose. But I worked on like a mini series for the show called Screening Ourselves and it was three episodes and I talked about um, three different movies from the past that had sort of contentious uh, histories, um, The Godfather and its representation of Italian Americans, Basic Instinct and its uh, representation of queer characters and then The Color Purple and its representation of like black male characters and black women. Um, and writing a script in that form, writing for audio is so different, I learned. And uh, it's it's like a completely different thing. And it was really, like I, I worked on that sort of concurrently while I was working on the book, but like it, it definitely sort of made me appreciate uh, how there's different ways to write. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, writing writing this book has made me really appreciate just how different writing is for for the page versus writing for for the ear. For the ear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I part of the reason I'd asked that I and I've made this confession to Aisha. I read a little more than half of the book and then I listened to the second half of the book, and they were very different experiences. And when I listened to some of the chapters that I had read early on, they felt different too. So for those of you who are into audiobooks, I think this is definitely one to, um, to experience in a couple of different ways. And that voice, it does come out differently depending on the, the medium. Yeah. I mean, I was, this was where my Northwestern theater degree came in handy. I was like, yeah, I can, I can act and pretend to be Dave Chappelle for a, a, few, <laughs> a few seconds. It's not a very good impression, but, you know, I tried. Sure. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of their conversation after a short Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio.
Welcome back. We're listening to Elaine Shaw's conversation with Aisha Harris, which was recorded on stage before a live audience in St. Louis County in June. Let's jump back into the conversation. Is there anything about this moment, summer 2023, that feels like this is the right time for this book? Yeah, because I think we're having so many conversations about representation. We're in a time where, you know, one of my goals for the book was to sort of take pop culture seriously and also explain why I think it's important to take pop culture seriously. I think often it's kind of seen, especially within media, uh, it's often seen as sort of like the dessert or the counter-programming to like the real stuff that's happening. And for me, it's all like, obviously there are some things that are more important than others, but I also think that like pop culture and politics go absolutely hand in hand in every way possible. You know, if that weren't true, then we wouldn't have people trying to ban books. We wouldn't have people trying to ban drag queens. Um, and I think that like, for me, what I wanted to get across is that it touches us in ways that are not always cognizant, that we may discover later on in life. And um, I think that because we're having those sorts of conversations now um, about you know representation and also just like what it means to have a better variety of representation in film and TV, I think this is kind of meets the moment. Yeah. And also, like I said, there's an entire chapter about like franchises. And yes. we are peak franchise. I don't know <laughs> if we've reached the peak, but you know. Uh, there's there, some way to go. <laughs> yeah, but Disney is, they just keep putting out more and more of these things and the, the train will not end. I and Maybe someday they'll try to remake Song of the South and we'll see how that goes. Oh. <laughs> they might run out of, that's the only thing left probably that they haven't said they're gonna remake, so. <laughs> Has talking about this book you know, with different folks in different parts of the country, has that revealed anything to you about dominant culture that you know that maybe you hadn't thought about before or you saw differently? Um, not that I can think of. I mean, it's interesting to me to to see and hear which pieces resonate with who. Um, it, you know, I've had. Uh, I have older white ladies who are like are really into the book, and I'm you know I wasn't necessarily writing it for them, but I, I the fact that they are able to relate to a lot of it, including the procreation one, uh, and just like also it seems like it's kind of helped people learn th- more things about culture, and um, you know it's been kind of fun to see that this book and and Pop Culture Happy Hour also just has like lots of different people who are fans of the show and I'm really thankful for that because we we try and I try to sort of appeal to as many people as possible while always also being as specific as possible. Have there been any new reckonings that you've come to through writing this book and then you know touring and interviewing about it? Uh, That writing is really terrible sometimes. (laughs) 
it was a very, look, it was kind of a traumatic experience for me that, uh, and I think a lot of writers will tell you that, or maybe they won't, but I, I think when I talk to other writers, this is a totally normal thing, is that like you hate yourself while you're writing, and you're like, why am I doing this? And I didn't actually take off any time from the show. Oh, so wow. I was like working the day job, and then in the evenings I would try and write, and sometimes it'd just be me staring at my computer for you know hours, <laughs> and maybe typing a paragraph, maybe a sentence. Uh, but having to sit with that and just uh, trust that process, um, yeah, writing that this book was sort of a reckoning with like who, like whether I whether or not I want to do something like this again, <laughs> or at least in this way. Um, but I'm glad the book is out in the world. So it's very much out. <laughs> yes. Let's have a few more questions from the audience. Hi, my name's Anne. I was just wondering a little bit more about your writing process and. Uh, kind of how you combat that resistance? Um, I, I, I think um, Dorothy Parker actually said this, but she liked to write, I think she liked to write in bed. Um, I like to write in bed. Probably not the best thing because it's like, why would you take your work to where you sleep? <laughs> but um, I don't know, there was something, especially during the pandemic, there was just something comforting about it and you couldn't, there weren't really places you could go. Um, I did take a couple of long weekends, and I, I live in the Bay, so I drove up and got an Airbnb and uh, for a weekend and took one of my dogs and, like, locked myself in the Airbnb and just wrote, and that was really great, like, really helpful. Um, usually have some sort of music on in the background. Um, if I'm feeling like I'm in a good groove, music with with lyrics are fine, but then I might get distracted. So it's a lot of classical or jazz instrumentals. Um, and as far as like pushing through, um, I don't know. It was some. It, it, it there was just a lot of <laughs> trying to. What did I, what did I do? Well, sometimes what I would do is I would just like do more research. You know, there's I can't. There was someone some reporter who was just like, whenever you get uh, writer's block, just like do more research. Um, so, you know, that could be skimming, writing more articles or, you know, just trying to do some sort of like word, just whatever words come to mind, just write them down and maybe at some point the ideas will flow together. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of, uh, a lot of also just like knocking my head against a wall. Not literally, but just, you know, Okay, and <laughs> trying to get myself psyched up to, to write some more. And on that note, there is a playlist on Spotify. Oh, yes, there that is. That Aisha has put together with music yes. from the book. You can, you can find that playlist. It's called Wannabe Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. And it, like, because it's full of the references, it's kind of all over the place. So you've got, like, Kenny G on there and Stevie Wonder, and uh, Muffin Top from 30 Rock. That's uh, track one. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, go check it out. <laughs> hi, um, I'm Wendy. I used to be from the Bay. Oh, hi. I um, want to get your thoughts on cancel culture. I was really disturbed to read an article this morning in the Times about everything's fine and how people are jumping up and down about that. It's a book for anybody who's not aware of it. So I don't know how cancel culture is 
permeating the world that you live in, but I'd love to get your thoughts. Uh, well, cancel culture isn't real. I'll just start with that. Um, it's not a real thing. It is, uh, I think the word they're sometimes looking for is accountability culture. Uh, I can't think of a single person who has been quote unquote canceled who has actually like faced, and like the only person I can think of is maybe R. Kelly. Bill Cosby's free. Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Woody Allen's still working. And um, I, I think that, to me, I think that like we need to move beyond uh, this idea that uh, when someone does something bad that we have to like immediately either, either jump in one direction or the other. I think um, it, it, a few years after Me Too, I don't know how much has really changed because I just keep saying, seeing the same conversations play out in the same way they did five years ago. Um, Jonathan Majors, the star of uh, Creed Three and Quantum Mania, I think that's what it was called. I, don't, uh, um, I think that when that happened and when it was announced that he might have, you know, been involved in a domestic violent incident. Uh, the same things were coming out where people were like, "Well, we don't we don't know for sure," or you know, oh, "He he was my you know he was the next big thing," and now I'm sad that I just uh, cancel culture is not real, and that is all I will say. <laughs> so you've been talking about pop culture the whole time. I was just wondering why we quantify it by calling it pop. Isn't it just plain culture? It's kind of a snobbery because, I mean, we call things pop because the masses like it. So why do we call it that? I don't know. Uh, I mean, but I think for me, pop culture encompasses, you know, everything from film, TV, music, but it also includes art. It also includes books. Um, and those things often intersect. I don't think necessarily that, you know, I can understand the snobbery aspect of it because there's definitely snobbery within how we talk about popular culture. But I also like think it's, uh, I don't know, I think it's, I think it's just the right, I think it's a word that works, or a phrase that works. Um, I have to think about that more. Because I've never, I've never really thought about it in that way, but um, I, I like it. I, I don't. Do you, you think it's kind of snobby? No, it just seems to be used like the accepted elite, like opera and ballet. That's culture, right? But then right. pop culture is is transitory and mm. loved mm -hmm. by the masses. That's yeah, how that's I've true. Seen it. I guess yeah, opera and the ballet like kind of feel slightly different. Um, I guess I'll have to interrogate that more. But I also kind of, I don't know, I, I think it's okay that there's kind of a delineation amongst them because there is really a huge difference um, between something like opera or even live theater generally, which is harder to reproduce for the masses um, as opposed to you know all the books and TV we watch. It's something that I've actually thought about as well. Yeah. And I, uh, I resisted pop culture when I was uh, when I was a kid. When you were talking about your father, it reminded me of some of the messages that I got 
about things that you you don't read, like comic books. That's mm. lowbrow. Yeah. That's popular culture. Um, you know, I came to see it differently over time. Uh, and then, I don't know if this is an experience that, that some of you can relate to. I went through a period of um, being very like, devoutly religious. And so there were things in popular culture that I was not consuming um, as a high school student and a college student. So there were blank spots sort of in my awareness and understanding of popular culture. And when I came out of that particular phase of my life, relating to people was kind of difficult mm. because I did not have the kind of um, like media knowledge that others did. Yeah. So when I was reading your book, you're talking about when you were born. And then I had mentioned when I came to the U.S., you know, Canadian pop culture was a little bit different. Yeah. Um, I don't know that that is necessarily the same now because of the advent of, you know, social media and, and how um, digital communication has sort of blown up. Yeah. And I really appreciate that question as well. To finish up here, Aisha, who would play you in an adapted for screen version of the book or a series inspired by it, you know, like IP that never ends. <laughs> uh, um, I this is a weird question. I never thought I would be asked. <laughs> um, probably, I would love if maybe Dominique Fishback, who uh, is in the new Transformers movie, but really she was great in Swarm. Um, and she's she was also on The Deuce, and she's kind of, her, her star is rising. But I also see like similar qualities just in her, like the way she moves in the world. Um, and she's a fantastic performer. So yeah, Dominique Fishback, let's manifest this. Yes, it is now <laughs> out in the world and you heard it here. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you. That was Aisha Harris talking with Elaine Shaw before a live audience in June. Aisha is co-host of the NPR podcast Pop Culture Happy Hour and author of the new book, Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. The author event was sponsored by the St. Louis County Library Foundation, the Novel Neighbor Bookstore, and St. Louis Public Radio. This episode was produced by Emily Woodbury and Elaine Shaw with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.